All right, let's talk about numbers. All right? Numbers a little better than Leviticus? Yeah, yeah. Some stories, some things that, uh, probably some things that you didn't realize were in numbers. Uh, because when you hear numbers, you don't think of stories like the spies going out, or you don't think about uh, some of the things that happened. And so uh, I hope you've enjoyed the kind of numbers. is kind of set up in two or three different sections, and we're going to talk about two of them tonight. One is the kind of the the preparation at Sinai, which is followed by the moving, the first moving of the tabernacle and the moving of everything, and uh, also the spies going out and lots of stuff happening in the midst of that. So y'all tell me questions you have, things you noticed, things that you maybe hadn't seen before in Numbers, things you want to know about, all that kind of stuff. Okay, go Cliff. Yeah. Here's the thing. They, you don't about like at the end of it, that not like when you get to heaven, why don't you walk up to Dan and ask him? All right? They, they counted, you know, one of the things is, um, I, I'm not saying that those numbers aren't true. I think they're true. But the, but the way they counted were, was maybe a little different than we do. Uh, and so they, they were precise in their counting, but they didn't get that precise, okay? Uh, it's hard enough for us to count on Sunday morning how many people we have in this room. I can't imagine counting 600,000 soldiers. To answer Sue's question from last week, Sue asked, if you remember last week, why had they lost so many people? They actually hadn't lost anybody. If you remember, in the uh, in, when they left Exodus, they talked about about 600,000 men. And when they get through with the count, it says they had 600,000 kind of soldiers, all right? And so that doesn't count women and children, and so the numbers would have been very comparable to where they were, and it was only uh, a year or two difference in when they left and where they were. One of the things that we have to remember, I know that we um, journeyed through Leviticus for a long time, it seemed, that when you have basically from Exodus 19 until Numbers 10, they are all, they're at Mount Sinai. Okay? So from when the Ten Commandments are given and all of that, from Exodus all the way through Leviticus, all that was given at Mount Sinai, and then the first ten chapters of Numbers, they're at Mount Sinai for that year, year and a half, two years. So that it, for us, it seems like, well, where, how long have they been out there? You know, where have they been going? They've been there. Okay? So that's important to remember. That doesn't have anything to do with your question, Cliff, but I had to answer something, right? Okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll put in a reservation for you with the dinner with Dan when you get to paradise, all right? Other questions, comments, thoughts you have, things you noticed? Yeah. You'd think they'd learn their lesson, wouldn't you? I mean, God kind of punishes them when they complain, and yet they keep complaining. Uh, Ms. Eleanor was talking about in Numbers 11, she did not... Remember that fire in one verse, verses 1 through 3. Uh, people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Now, there's some discussion about what does it mean in the hearing of the Lord. You can go with the literal translation. In the hearing of the Lord means they complained where the Lord could hear them. Now, here's the thing. If you complain anywhere, the Lord can hear, right? There's some that think that in the hearing of the Lord means that they complain directly to the Lord. God you have done it again. You've put us where we can't imagine. And so 
that's a little bit different. But they complain, and when they hear, when he hears, his anger is aroused, and the fire comes and burns the outskirts of the camp. And the people cried out, he prayed, and the Lord fired down. down. So you get this picture. In, in Numbers, you begin to get this picture, and we can talk about this for a minute if you want to. We don't have to. We can move on. But of Numbers seems to portray God wanting to kill everybody and Moses saying, no, 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 stop, stop. Let's, let's wait. Let's, let's, let's wait on that. You know, there's this time, there's another time after that when God says, basically, I'm done with them, Moses. I'm going to kill them. And then we're going to start with you, and we're going to build a new place. And Moses says, God, then you would look ridiculous because Egypt, you know, what you did in Egypt, why, why would you do that? And so you get this debate, which leads to the debate that we've talked about before. If you remember with Abraham and God and Sodom and Gomorrah, of does Moses change God's mind? And the truth is that God knew all along what was going to happen. And he's building, I think, within Moses this understanding that these are the people that are going to accomplish his task, whether they want to or not. Right? He's going to do it through this nation. Now, the truth is, God rejects these people, but not the nation. Right? I mean, these people complain, and he says, I'm done. You're not going to the promised land. But the nation isn't rejected. It's don't you love how he says, by the way, your children, they're going to enjoy what you should have enjoyed. But you're not. Yes, ma'am, Miss Cologne. Nazarite was just one that took this vow. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you read this passage, it makes it seem like the Nazarite vow was a temporary thing. Okay? Where they would take this vow for a short period of time. Almost like uh, people who, almost like what's happening right now in the Catholic Church or an Episcopal church or some of the some more traditional church, calendar churches, that are doing the uh, Lent, where for 40 days before Easter, they're going to give up something. Y'all know that's what Mardi Gras is all about, right? Fat Tuesday is just let's do everything imaginable wrong because tomorrow we're going to be good people, uh, starting on Wednesday on Lent. And so it's almost like some people that said, hey, I'm going to dedicate myself to the Lord for this period of time to seek directions, like fasting in the New Testament, to understand. Now, by the time you get to the New Testament, you have somebody that it never really says that um, John the Baptist, uh, I don't believe, I say that. That's the kind of statement you say, and then one of you is going to raise your hand and says, it says, and whatever. Uh, uh, Willard's not here. He'd probably tell me in Second Maccabees somewhere it says it, right, in the one of those writings. It never says John the Baptist took that vow, but a lot of people think he did. But in the New Testament, you get to the point where the Nazarite vow became a lifelong vow. And so a Nazarite was just this person that took this vow that they weren't going to cut their hair, that they were going to do certain things. But it's interesting that when they finished their vow, they cut their hair and they burned it. They got rid of it. They shaved their head. If they had got defiled in the midst of it, they had to shave it and do all that and start over again. So does that answer your question? Yes, Eddie. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, they they had livestock with them, but they were providing other, I mean, they had other stuff. Um, it never gives us a full explanation, Eddie, but part of it was that they were to be completely dependent upon the Lord, and that's the way the Lord set it up. And he kind of let it known if they ate other stuff that they would not be good. Uh, it would not be good for them. So uh, that was 
what they had to eat. Now, you can read stuff. I mean, you read what manna was. It gives a little better description of it. Uh, I told you the first time we encountered manna, the, the, that word literally means what is it. Um, but you get the sense that it wasn't terrible. I mean, it tasted okay. Uh, and like I said, for those people eating it every day, probably shouldn't have been a big deal. My favorite complaint they have is they remembered the fish they ate for free in Egypt. Right? Now, why did they eat for free? Because they were slaves, right? They, they, they were fed that food. So, Anybody read... We'll get to your question, Ms. Teresa. He might read this out of the New International Version this week, NIV. In that passage, when he gives them the quail, it's a crazy passage. I mean, that's the story I told you last week. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. They all complain they don't have any meat, so God says, I'll give them some meat. They want some meat, I'll give them some meat. And in the NIV, it literally says, I will give them quail until it's running out their noses. That's what it says, all right? And so don't you love this picture that it says that he caused the quail to come in from the sea and they all hovered, right, at like three feet above. Now, one of the things for us is we think three feet above, that hit us in the legs here. But the average Jewish male at this time was probably four and a half to five feet tall. So that would have been a perfect catching distance, all right? And so can't you just see, I can just imagine them going out and look, Woo! look what I got today. Like they did something when God made them all hover there. But then, the ones that had complained, they got their quail, and what happened? It must have had salmonella or something in it, right? God sent a plague, and a lot of them died, right? Just a, It's a great passage of, I love Moses complaining there, and I think that Moses' complaining was righteous anger. God, I'm tired of these people. You gave them to me. They're not my kids. Is that what he says? Did I give birth to these people? You gave them to me. Then they're stubborn. I don't like them. I'll tell you, that passage gets preached sometimes at pastor's conferences. I don't, I don't preach it, but there are other pastors I've heard that have preached it. All right, Miss Teresa. Yeah. No, no. They, it seems that for some reason, by the time you get to numbers, and that's not really explained to us, that they're not, they're just getting the manna. And the rabble there, the, the New Living Translation, which has a different translation, because I've always read it out of the NIV, except when I'm reading through this Bible, has the foreigners, the foreign rabble is what it says. And so there's the idea there that these may be foreigners that are traveling with them. Uh, there's some thought out there that it wasn't just the Israelites traveling, but that you had God-fearers, people that had seen what had happened in Egypt and said, that's the God I want to follow, people that had heard the story and started to kind of, which is why Moses kind of comes to God and says, what about your reputation? You've built this reputation of what you've done, and then you're going to let us all die. And so, but what is interesting is you have the non-Israelites seeming to start it, but then the Israelites pick it up and they all start complaining. By this time, it looks like they weren't getting any meat, and so they, they may have been saying, we used to get quail here. What happened? God said, all right, here it is. Joyce? Yeah. That's his. That's Moses' sister. Oh, yeah. That, she would not have been Canaanite. They're, they believe that Zipporah had passed away at this time and that he, Cush would have been an area near Egypt. Um, that has been falsely translated Ethiopian at times. Um, 
there are those that say because she was a different race that it was wrong. But the truth is, I mean, it's made pretty clear here that Moses had not done anything to make his authority with God wrong. So there are people that will take this passage and say you should never marry interracially. But that's not, Moses isn't the one in the wrong here. It's Miriam and Aaron, right? Now, there are several clues in this passage that the one who started the rebellion was Miriam. Which is interesting because she's the one that helped save Moses, rescue him. And it seems the real problem was that somehow Moses had become the leader. And she does this whole thing about who, who he married, but then that leads to the real issue. I know that this is a foreign concept to you all, but sometimes when people get mad, they bring up side issues before they get to the real issue. I mean, in seminary, they used to teach us, you know, in seminary, you do counseling, a couple of counseling classes, and they try to help you through some things. And then one of the things they always say is, whatever they come in presenting is probably not what the issue is. Tom's done tons of counseling. I mean, that's kind of a known thing. And so Miriam comes up and says, I don't like this woman you've married. But the real issue is, why are you the only one that speaks? Why are you the only one that gets the knowledge from the Lord? Why are you the only one that gets to go in the tabernacle and see God? Why are you the only one that's the prophet? So God punishes. Another reason to think that Miriam started is God punishes Miriam pretty severely, right? Other questions, comments, things that you notice in numbers? Rick? Yeah. And I think, you know, my my favorite part of that, because um, we talk about what does face-to-face mean, and I think this, what's that? Yeah, I'll repeat that. He just, Rick said that he was overwhelmed with verses 6 through 8 in chapter 12, where it talks about the relationship Moses had with God and God's words about Moses. I mean, when, I mean, if you could write that, if God would write that on your tombstone, wouldn't that be enough? You know, that... Uh, this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Basically, he says there are other prophets, but they're not Moses. And so we talked about the face to face thing a while back, and I think that is, even here it tells you a little more clearly. It's not necessarily that they're looking at each other. It's just he doesn't shroud anything. I even think to the New Testament when Jesus is teaching and he has to teach in parables. Basically, God says, I don't have to talk to Moses in parables. I just talk. You have a question on the back end of that? Okay. Here's what Rick's asking about, like a generational curse, that the sins of the father will find itself on the children even to the third generation or fourth generation. I think that we... I think there are definite consequences of sin that fall on the children of parents. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't, in a gracious way, overlook that or redeem them from that, but I do think it's there. Um, I think there are, I think that you could even look in some addiction things, that, that we look at some genetic addiction things that are kind of passed on and that those habits are passed. You think about the cycle of things like domestic violence that, that they talk about that, you know, if a father commits domestic violence against a wife, that the son is, 
I forget the numbers, but it's four or five times more likely to be involved in domestic violence. I think obvious consequences are seen. Uh, I think an area that we can see that in America today is that we're raising a, a generation that, uh, if you look at all the statistics, the, the generation that we're raising now from about 15 to about 30 are the most godless generation that America has ever had, and that's not that's not a moral thing. That's a, the way they believe and act. And I think some of that has to do with we've just seen one of the biggest trends in the history of any nation of marriages being broken apart, homes being broken apart. Um, I think that, that consequences fall, and I think that that um, that in some ways even the sin itself kind of settles. Strongholds that, that dads, if they allow strongholds in their families, can be strongholds in their family's family. That answer it, Rick? Well, I, I think I think all of that, especially in the New, tell like the New Testament, um, where he said, "What about somebody that's unsaved and then they they become saved?" I think in light of the New Testament, we see that God's grace is sufficient and superior to all of that. But I do think that uh, I do think that generational curses. I think that word "curse" may be a strong word, but I think generational tendencies, sins, consequences exist. And I think that even, I think parents have to come to realize that even if they're saved at age 40, that there may have been some things that they did in their 20s and 30s that will have consequences on their children. Uh, you know, I mean, you have, in this passage, one of the things I realized is that I saw again, I didn't realize for the first time, but you see there's the consequences of sin. And the this emotional decision by the Israelites, and it's a big decision to not go into the promised land because the giants would have major consequences. None of them are going to go. And so I think it's a serious thing we have to consider. You want to add to that, Tom? And I do think that, and, and Tom mentioned the secular council, they call it a family system that just passes on from one family to the next, or within a family. I do think that we in America with our just in general, with our scientific, rational minds, devalue the spiritual side of those kind of things. And I think that Scripture makes it pretty clear that, that Satan gets a foothold in a family and can hold that until that cycle is broken, until that battle is won, and, and we need to be aware of that. Phil, you don't get in much spiritual warfare discussion in numbers, so that's good. Thanks, Rick. Ms. Dottie. Right. There's definitely this understanding in Scripture that God's blessing is much more powerful than any curse and that doing what is right in the sight of the Lord is more powerful. One of the things that you notice at the beginning of Numbers is how often the phrase, and they did it exactly like Moses told them or exactly like the Lord told them, you know, when they're setting up the tabernacle and they're getting all the people together and they're bringing the offerings and they're setting the poles and they're getting all that ready to move, and you see all this stuff about they did it exactly as the Lord commanded, they did it exactly as the Lord said, and then you get, but then they got mad. And one of the things, one of the one of the studies, commentaries, or sermons I was reading through this, uh, as I was reading along with this, said, is it's amazing how quickly dissatisfaction leads to disobedience. And you can see that even in modern day. It's amazing how quickly dissatisfaction leads to disobedience. 
I thought the most brazen thing in this whole passage is when God says, that's it, you can't go to the promised land. And what do they do? They try to go to the promised land. Well, we've seen our problem, God. You're right. We messed up. Let's go. God says, they don't work that way. Anything? I'm going to make a couple of final comments before we move on. Anything else? They did. Yeah, you see in here Caleb and Joshua come back and they fight to go when they're supposed to. And when you get to the book of Joshua, the two guys that are left going into the promised land are Joshua and Caleb. We'll get to Joshua sometime in June. No, we'll be sooner than that. We'll be to Joshua right after Easter. And uh, we have that great story of Caleb, even in Joshua. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Here, I think that goes all the way back to Genesis. When you get to the Tower of Babel, you have that separation. You have languages confused, and you have people scattered among the, among the earth. Um, I think that's where the differentiation and races come. Uh, what I don't see anywhere in the Old Testament is a condemnation of any race just because of their race. What you see is a condemnation of races, peoples that follow idols or that follow other gods, but not just because their skin is a different color, or they speak a different language, or they have a different culture. And so... But I think that goes all the way back to Genesis when you have the Tower of Babel and the separation. Because what happens here really is the Bible focuses narrowly on a very small group of people in the world's economy. I mean, we have this entire book basically centered. Now, it's written all over, I mean, it's written over several continents, but this book is centered in a very small geographic area. I mean, Egypt is as far west as we're going to get in this book until you get all the way to Paul going up to Rome and those things. I mean, until you get to the book of Acts, this book is in that fertile crescent Middle East. In the book of Acts, it spreads up into Asia and up Turkey, what is Turkey now, and up into Europe. But it's a very focused thing. And the reason is not because God didn't care about everybody else. It's because this was God's plan from the very beginning to take a people and to through his people to spread his word, which seems to have worked pretty well since there are more people on the face of the earth following this faith than any other faith. Exactly. Yeah. And I, that's the, and you know, you even see that passage in Moses' concern. Moses' concern about the people of Israel was more than just for the people of Israel because he says, God, don't hurt them because what would everybody else think? Right? He says, what would everybody else think? That you took us out of there, they're going to laugh at you. Show them that you're the God. Show them you're the one because they need you as much as we do. All right? A couple of things on numbers as we get ready to kind of head out of here. Um, here's the thing that always humbles me in the midst of reading numbers. This part of numbers. Is that the Israelites were on the verge of something that nobody could have asked or imagined for. This land, I mean, they come back, right? Those guys come back with the spies and they say, listen, you have got to see the fruit over there. I mean, it is unbelievable. When it says it's a land flowing milk and honey, it is a land of milk and honey. It is plentiful. It is great. 
It is unbelievable. It is as you have heard it described. But there's some big folks over there. And the challenges are just too big for us to handle. And I think we've carved out a pretty good existence for ourselves right here. And I think we're okay right now where we are. We're settled. We're good. The man is coming. We could have the abundance of God that he has promised. But it's going to be hard. And I don't think we can do it. So let's just stay right here. And that one little decision cost them 40 years. I can tell you as a pastor of a church, when I read that passage, and I think about the future that God has for our church, and I think about the challenges that are out there that I know are out there, I can tell you this, if it wasn't a God-sized task, there wouldn't be challenges. And so if you look out and you see the challenges and you see the giants and you see all that, and you think, maybe we need to step back for a moment. Tell that pastor to come off the ledge for a minute and talk to us in a sensible way. I just know that Scripture teaches that you ought to be careful when you're dealing with the future plans that God has for you. And I don't ever see God getting on to people for trying something that they think is of the Lord that's too big. You don't ever see God going, what, y'all, y'all missed it, that was too big. Y'all, y'all need to scale that back. What you see here is it cost them 40 years. i just tell you this as your pastor. And you've heard me say things like this before. I do believe we are at one of those moments on the edge of getting ready to see God do some great things. But I also believe if we say not right now or the challenges are too big, then God may say, all right, I'm going to move on for 20 years. I'll see you later. I'm going to move down the road here. We're going to do some things down there because they're ready. You're not. And for some people in this church, it might be okay to kind of settle where we are. But it's not for me when I can see what God has out there. And I don't even know what that is for them. And they didn't either. They just got a glimpse. And so I just would ask you to continually pray that God won't let us miss the opportunity that he's placing before us. Turn over to the book of Mark. That was free. Y'all need to pay for that tonight. We were in Mark 11, towards the end of Mark 11, and we went all the way through Mark 15. Things you noticed in here, we didn't get to Mark 15, did we? Mark, I'm not looking at my one-year Bible. Mark 14. We got to Mark 14, verse 65. All right? Things you notice, questions you have, interesting notes. Yes, Gary. Mark 13, verse 14. Yeah. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, saying where it does not belong, let the reader beware. Mark Mark 13, we talked about this a little bit, is this kind of Olivet Discourse, this idea where Jesus is giving the end of the world kind of speech. And I think, as I've said before, that there is a dual understanding of what's happening here. And the first and obvious thing that's understanding here is that about 35 years after this, Jerusalem's destroyed. And what that means is when you see the abomination that causes desolation, this idea 
of the Roman government and destruction coming to the temple of God and everything that they know being wiped out. This generation, there are people in this generation that he is speaking to that will see that. Okay? Because he says a little later, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away. Now, if we're talking about the end of time, then Jesus kind of missed it a little bit, didn't he? I mean, if he's saying that there are people standing there that would see him come again at the second coming, I don't know of anybody that's still alive from A.D. 32. But if he's talking about, in one sense, this destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 by the Roman government as they took over and wiped out this entire city, then there are people there, and he's saying it's going to be a terrible, terrible day. So I think that's the first understanding. I think it also means that there's coming a day when the great, uh, when at the end of time, evil will rear its head in a way that we haven't seen before, and there will be a war like we've never seen before in the spiritual realm, and it's at that moment that we need to be aware as well. That answer, Gary, or cloudy it. Right. Yeah. And, and he, I think he's definitely telling them that it, it's a dual kind of thing. This is going to happen. But then he says, that's not the end. Then this is going to happen, and it's going to be, you don't know when it's going to happen. I don't even know when it's going to happen, he says. Son doesn't know. But you've got to be watchful. I think that's one reason. If you turn, you're, you're in Mark 13 there. You turn one chapter over to Mark 14, and in Mark he places these two things very closely together where he tells them they've got to be on watch, they've got to be constantly on guard, be prepared, you never know when it's going to come, everything's going to happen, be ready, be watching, and then what happens in Gethsemane? They all go to sleep. And he says, you can't even watch for an hour. I mean, I think that's where that real frustration comes in. It's not just, hey, some guys went out there, they were tired, they fell asleep. It's, you couldn't even watch for an hour. I, I'm going to need you to watch for centuries. You can't watch for an hour. Other comments, questions, that, and, and that's where we get into, Miss Rachel, the underst- of how you understand the book of Revelation, too. Um, there are some people that definitely think that what he's talking about, the second fulfillment. I think there are two fulfillments. There's, for some of it, there's two fulfillments. For some, there's one fulfillment. But there's this idea that this is going to happen in 8070, and then it's going to happen at the end of time. And for those people that believe in the rapture, tribulation following the rapture. That, that's what they think is understood here. Um, but he also seems to suggest here that this is something, this tribulation is something unexpected, and it leads to God's people having to be aware of some things. So there are some people that think that the rapture is not going to happen until after the tribulation. Uh, there are those people. There are some people that don't think there will be necessarily a seven-year tribulation. That's symbolic language in Revelation. So it kind of depends on your philosophy there. And the truth is, well, we have to understand, when Jesus is asked the question, he does not answer it to clarify anything for him. Did you notice that? He doesn't, he doesn't make anything real clear. He says, are you going to hear about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes? Fam-? Yeah, oh, man, there was one the other day. Yeah, that stuff's happening all around. Well, that's not it. Now, it's, it's kind of like the birth pains, but that's not it. it it's kind of like 
the guy that, that went away and they didn't know when he was going to come back. But, but you just got to always be prepared. And so, you know, people read this and try to come up with the whole system of when it's going to happen. Jesus didn't want anybody to know when it's going to happen. God doesn't. He wants us all to be prepared now. Miss Dottie? What, what it's saying there, I think, I think that's one of those dual fulfillments. And what he's saying is, when this desolation happens, when the destruction happens, you're not going to have time to go back and get your stuff. you got to get out of there. And at the same time, when the second coming happens, you're not going to be able to get your house in order. Wait a minute. Jesus, I know you're coming on the clouds right now. Could you wait for just a second? I've got a phone call I need to make, and I need to run down to the bank for a minute. We're not gonna, it's not going to be that way. That sounds ridiculous to even think that, right? But I think that's what he's saying, Miss Dottie. Do you notice anything in the arrest story in Mark that you didn't remember? Miss Acola, yes, ma'am. Then he's not clothed in his long linen shirt anymore, right? It's yeah, that's not in any of the other. It's not in any of the other gospels. There are a lot of people to think that it's not in any other gospel because it's Mark. That that there are a lot of now this is tradition. Okay, let me tell you the difference between tradition and Bible. Bible is true, all that it states, it's true. Tradition is what stories have been passed down. There are a lot of there are a lot of tradition out there that the Last Supper was eaten at John Mark's house in his upper room. And there are some that think that Judas left and came back to John Mark's house and brought the authorities there. And Jesus was not there because he was in the garden. And so John Mark at his house heard the commotion. What he's where this young man is wearing is something somebody would have thrown at like a nightgown. I'm throwing that on because I ain't got time to get dressed. I'm just going to throw it on and go out and see what's going on. And he gets there and Jesus gets arrested. And some people think he may have been trying to get arrested and he is defrocked, declothed. Isn't it interesting, though, some things that are just kind of put in there? Not many, not many sermons are preached on that. I've never, I've never preached one on it. Other stuff in Mark. Rick? All right. Yeah, Rick's asking about verse 36 of chapter 14 where Jesus says, take the cup, but I'm going to do your will. I think it just shows that Jesus knew what was about to happen, and it was the most difficult thing anybody has ever gone through. Period. And the human side of him did say, if there is any other way, let's figure it out. But it's not like he sits there and then he goes through, so God, I thought about it. Here's here's point A, B, and C of the way we could do it differently. It's just, I know there's not. I wish there were, but this is what's required. And so, let's go. I, I do think, you know, I mean, somebody, one commentator said that Mark paints a more dark description of Gethsemane than anybody else. That you get this real, when you read Mark, you get this, and it's interesting because Mark, I mentioned, Mark gives very few details. You know, when, when you think about, I mean, we're in chapter 14. We're at the crucifixion almost. And it's that bang, 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 bang. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And we get here, and it's like that in all Gospels. But in a real way, Mark slows down for a moment. and kind of gives us a peek into what's happening here. And it's real, 
the word that comes to mind is foreboding. Just real heavy. And I've been to a lot of Easter musicals and presentations and those kind of things. I don't think there is any human way possible to carry over the sense that was in that garden that night. And that Jesus knew what had to be done, but it was not going to be pleasant. I mean, you had the physical agony, you had the emotional agony, you had the spiritual agony of knowing that his father was going to turn his back on his sin that was placed on him from us. You had all of that. Max Lucado, who most of you all know is have read something of his or know of his name, wrote has written a, and I don't even remember which book it's in. I, th- I think it may be in God Came Near. And no wonder they call him the Savior. One of his early books. Talks about that moment in the garden. Talks about the moment when he's getting ready to leave his dad's shop. He's getting ready to go on this ministry that he knows will lead them death. And how that Jesus is sitting there wondering, is it all worth it? And he says, and it's, you know, holy speculation, if you will. And in those moments, the faces and the names of the people that had been and were and were to come began to flash. And in those moments, he knew the reason that it was worth doing what he was about to do. We are moving in on the Easter season, and so I think it's important we think about that and move in on it. One of the reasons there are a lot of people my age not just my age but there are a lot of people my age that are beginning to rethink instituting the Christian calendar in its fullness even in churches that haven't things like Lent because they say well Easter is kind of a holiday that we about a week before we go oh Easter's coming let's get our Easter dress and our Easter bonnet nobody really buys bonnets anymore I guess but you know that's you know the point there. Let's get all our stuff together and let's go have Easter and get our eggs out. We got our Easter egg hunt planned out and we go have Easter. When it was a much more pivotal, pivotal, pivotal time than that. Yes, sir. You. I didn't say any question. I'm, I'm what I meant, but which where where are you talking about there? Yeah. He says I am. Yeah. We'll talk about that in just a second. Well, my point earlier was that he doesn't answer their question about the end times with any direct answers. He, 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 and here's the thing. As he draws closer to his crucifixion, he gets more direct. And when he, they said, are you the son of God, his answer is what? Yahweh. Right? Basically. Now, he doesn't say Yahweh. He says, I am. In the Greek text, in Aramaic, he would have said, I am. But Yahweh means, I am. That phrase we'll see in John when he says, before Abraham was, I am. That was a direct declaration of deity from Jesus. Somebody tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, you can point them to this verse. Say he does. All right? Yes, ma'am. Miss Rachel. Right. No, it wouldn't have been during their lifetime. The question is, how would they have known who Elijah and Moses are? Here's the simple answer. First of all, Jesus may have looked at them and said, first of all, they knew they weren't anybody alive because of the way they looked. They're completely different. Jesus looked different, so something amazing was going on here. And then they, Jesus may have referred to them as Elijah, Moses, how you doing? What's going on? Um, 
but they would have just known by the way they talked. There, there seems to be this moment of supernatural knowledge given to them by God of you are in a holy moment, a moment they didn't know how to handle. They want to build shelters, but it says they want to build shelters not for the reason that Peter gives, but because they were scared. They didn't know what to do. And so, Miss Rachel, the only way I can say is they, they just knew. They wouldn't have said it. You know, I mean, we think today, well, of course, if George Washington walked in here, I might know what George Washington was because I know what he looked like. Well, they didn't exactly have pictures back then. They definitely didn't have portraits. Well, I mean, Jesus says that right after that. He says, God, reveal this to you. I, I think here's another thing that that teaches us about heaven. I don't know that any of us will look like we look right now in heaven. Now, there, there is some author out there, and we, re, we did his study, and he's a great author, and I, that speculates that we're all going to be 33 years old in heaven because that's our prime shape. I'm going to tell you right now, this is not my prime shape. I have looked better and felt better than I do right now, okay? But I don't know that I'm going to look like I look right now, but here's the thing I know is I'll know you all, and I'll know my family. And I'll know people that I've never met before. I don't think there will be long introductions in heaven. I think we'll know who we are. Yeah. I mean, I think there will be some... I think I don't think that means that we'll know everything when we get to heaven. I think there's still discipleship. I think we still learn. I think we still grow. But I think there will be an understanding of who we are. Our memories will be really good. So, yes, sir, Mr. Cliff. Yeah. You know, and I think Jesus' point at the Olivet Discourse is some of that. Hey, listen, guys, you, that's important stuff. That, that, don't take, that's important stuff. But it's not vital to what you're going to have to I mean, he says to him, listen, you're about to be persecuted. And you're going to have to be grounded in stuff more solid than I know the chart of the end times. You have to be grounded in what's going on now in order to withstand the persecution. All right, let's move to Psalm and Proverbs. Anybody got a proverb of the week, one they liked? Today's? Riches won't help you on the day of judgment, but right living can save you on the day of death. Mine was early in the week. Lazy people irritate their employers. Like vinegar to the, I'm not speaking of anyone. Like vinegar to the, I just like the description, vinegar to the teeth or smoke in the eyes. Anybody ever... Uh, my dad used to grill, still does occasionally. I used to help him grill 250 to 500 hamburgers at a time. And you ever, he, he has this huge grill, and he'd crank it up, and he'd crank it up. you get in there and start flipping those burgers, and about 10 in, smoke starts just filtering in those eyes. And it's just fighting through to get those things done, just irritant. Any psalms that, that spoke to you this week or... We had one of the most famous psalms this week, Psalm 51. David's cry out after his sin with Bathsheba. We'll read that story. I think it'll probably be this summer, be the early part of this summer. So, all right, still making it all right, still going through okay. We're we're on our way. We're almost a third of the way through. Quarter of the way through. I won't give you too much credit yet, right? But I will tell you this, that the heart, I've told you this, the hardest part is where we are right now. Now, Numbers gives you a little respite, and over the next few days we're going to see some things that happen between here 
and getting ready to go to the promised land. Um, Deuteronomy is one that you'll have to kind of fight through a little bit. But then once you get there, Joshua, I really believe you're going to know most of Joshua. I think there are going to be stories in Judges that surprise you. I think there will be stories in First and Second Samuel that you won't have heard in a while. First, uh, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles. When you get to uh, some of the prophets and some of the other history books, just some neat stuff that we're going to see and learn. Okay, be looking for this each day. I'm adding stuff to you as we go. All right, be looking for something you can do out of what you have read. Okay. Each day. And then do that. All right? When I was growing up, we used to journal a lot. And I got one of those student discipleship journals. And it would have what I read, what I learned, what I'm going to do. And I'd always write down some really good stuff to do. And there were many days I never did what I wrote down. I'd think, ooh, God is calling me to that. And then I'd look back two weeks later and go, man, that would have been good to do. I don't know why I didn't do that. Act on what you know, all right? Don't be like a man that looks into the mirror and then realizes his deficiencies and walks away unchanged. Act on what you know. Have a great week.